Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021. But that goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big, important ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Sasha Eisenberg to Salt Talks. Uh, Sasha is the author of three prior books, including The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns. He's covered presidential elections as a national political reporter in the Washington Bureau of the Boston Globe. He's been a columnist for Slate and a contributor to Bloomberg Politics and Bloomberg Business Week. He's the Washington correspondent at Monocle, and his work has also appeared in New York, the New York Times Magazine, and George, where he served as a contributing editor. He teaches in the political science department at UCLA, and a very smart man lives in beautiful Santa Monica uh, out in sunny California. His most recent book is called The Engagement, and it's about America's quarter century struggle over same-sex marriage. It's a fantastic, uh, very thorough book on the subject, one that's very near and dear to our hearts and one that Anthony you know, worked on personally, along with Rob Reiner, which he'll talk about more as he gets into the talk. But hosting today's talk uh, is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony. Well, I don't have a copy of the book with me, Sasha, because I'm out here in sunny California with you, but I have a picture on my phone. There you go. Hold up the book for everybody. There it is. Um, so I, I received your book. I'm going to tell you my history with your book because I love books. I received your book. Uh, and then I read the New York Times front page book review, which I thought was uh, a fascinating review. And they gave you a great one. Uh, and when I read the book, I read Victory Lab. Uh, prior, because uh, I have obviously an interest in politics, despite my disastrous 11-day episodic event in politics. And I thought these books were conjoined. So we're going to get into your background in a second, but I'm going to tell you why they were conjoined. Because in Victory Lab, you wrote about the science of winning an election, but there was a scientific process in this book, in my opinion, in terms of the struggle to legalized same-sex marriage, in many respects, Sasha, I felt there was a political campaign going on uh, at the same time, uh, apropos to the civil rights campaign, corollary to that, but also there was a political campaign and an agenda and a quorum very similar to Victory Lab. Did I get that right or did I miss yeah. something? Yeah, you know, I think that there are parts of this book which are very much, as you say, about innovation and, and campaigns, figuring out how to persuade people, how to target your persuasion, how to measure your persuasion and then how to actually make it work in, you know, what we're often these state level ballot measure campaigns, which, you know, you've been around a lot of candidate campaigns and it's a very different beast when you have, you know, a bunch of nonprofits and issue organizations coming together in a state like Minnesota to beat back a, a constitutional amendment. And so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that we, we tend to think of great campaigns as being candidate centric or party centric. But I think that, you know, this sort of proves to be one of the, the great political campaigns of recent memory. And I think that will be really surprising if we talked to somebody 15 years ago, because it seemed like such a loser of a cause and that anybody associated with it 
um, elected officials and the like were were uh, uh, sort of you know doomed to, to to be dragged down by it. Well, I mean, there is a there is a scenario here in New York, which I know you remember. Uh, several hedge fund managers, Dan Loeb, et cetera, uh, gave money to uh, Republican state senators in New York to flip the marriage proposal, same-sex marriage. Uh, those four Republican senators decided to vote for it. They all lost their elections, okay? And that's only, I guess, 10 or 12 short years ago. Um, before we go completely into the book, though, I think your background is also fascinating. Uh, what was it like to work at George? Um, tell us a little bit about how you grew up. Why did you become a uh, journalist? Um, and then yeah. we'll delve more into the book, which I'm obviously fascinated by. So I grew up in, in New York and in, um, in Westchester County. And uh, I went to uh, high school in the Bronx uh, at the Horace Mann School. Um, and I got lucky enough to... Uh, uh, end up at George Magazine when I was 15 years old as a basically unofficial summer intern. Um, the magazine was in its, uh, it launched in September of 1995. And early that summer, I got in. And one of the things about magazines pre-launch is um, there's a lot of work to do and nobody really knows who's supposed to do any of it. And it's quite possible they didn't understand child labor laws either. And so um, an editor told me that if I kept on coming in uh, every day that summer, he couldn't pay me or give me anything official. They'd already hired their official, you know, Ivy League interns, but I could um, make myself useful. And then, you know, I guess like the common cold or herpes or whatever, I never went away. And um, I toe fungus. It's <laughs> toe fungus, Sasha. Okay. I see myself as toe fungus. Once I'm in the toe, I you know you can't get rid of me. But so but I, I hear you. So so you were 15 when you started at George. I was 15 when I started, and then you know I gradually got more responsibility doing some of my own reporting and little bits of my own writing and all all sorts of of things that are were less glamorous. And I ended up being the only person who was with the magazine for its whole life. So it lasted about five and a half years till it folded, and and by the end I was I was writing for the magazine and while I was in college. And, and, you know, it was, um, I think a lot about this as we look back on what's happened with politics in the last 25 years since, since John Kennedy launched the magazine, but I think he was, you know, incredibly perceptive at noticing the ways that politics and popular culture were, were not just intersecting, but sort of becoming um, indifferentiable from one another. And the way in which the sort of political media sphere and the entertainment sphere were were one in the same. And that was a pretty radical proposition to build a magazine around in the 1990s. Um, and like the advertising environment didn't quite understand whether it was a political magazine or a pop culture magazine. But, you know, I think often about how he would look at certainly the, the you know, the people who are national political figures now, let's say, um, and, and think that that it, it might have been, you know, a, a sort of natural arc from from some of the stuff that we were seeing back then. Do you think Joe Biden is the last of the political infrastructure figures to become president. And what I mean by that is uh, uh, President Biden became a senator in 1972. He went on to become president, um, um, but he was 49 years in the establishment infrastructure of the American political system. Um, uh, do you think, or do you think that we'll have celebrity presidents apropos to Donald Trump or The Rock or uh, where do you think that that's going from a genre perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, I think Trump shows that there are far more shortcuts to the presidency than there used to be. You know, I mean, I guess we could talk about whether Eisenhower took a shortcut or not. Um, but but, you know, 
I think that that's a, that that's clearly an example that you can build your profile, um, your your sort of base of support outside of the political establishment and international politics at the highest level, and and have a foundation for it. And you know, you know, I don't know, we could, The Rock, Will Smith. People talk about Tom Brokaw running for president twenty years ago. It's all basically the same the same proposition. That said, I think we can look back at Biden's success as, you know, and I think we've talked for years about how senators or lifelong politicians have a tougher job running for president because they have all this baggage and all these votes and 49 years of clips of things they've said. And you could also look at Biden's success last year as very much a testament to the fact that he had paid his dues with almost every part of the Democratic coalition. He you know, might not have been beloved by any part of the Democratic coalition, but was liked and trusted enough by just about all of them. And that was a testament to his longevity. Like, I don't know if there's ever like a Democratic fan base for Joe Biden, but you know what, when it came time to run for president, you know, African-Americans, he, he'd sort of like, you know, built a, a long record of, 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 you know, labor unions, but he could raise money the LGBT community. And that was like, you know, accumulated over years. And I think that, that there is, you know, I, I wouldn't surprise me if we see other situations where parties turn to people like that because um, other candidates are flawed in their way. I think the question is, you know, how many people are going to be in politics for 49 years? Um, I mean, that's the other thing is we just don't see that many career politicians. We see, you know, people sort of skedaddle when they can make more money or they get frustrated in the Senate or whatever else. I'm not sure if we'll see many more lifers. Well, it's just interesting. I, I wanted your perspective because I think you've, you've, you've had your hand on the pulse of this for a quarter of a century. Uh, so back to the book, uh, again, the fascinating, fascinating book, the engagement about America's quarter century struggle over same-sex marriage. Uh, I saw the book as a layered cake. It was it was had three tiers to it, in my opinion. I'd like to get your reaction to it. The, the first tier was the sentiment on the ground and people in our society. And obviously the biblical society, the Christian society and others. That was tier one. The second tier was politicians. And to your point in the book, most of them as recently as 10 or 15 years ago didn't want to touch it with a hot you know, anything it was hot stove to those people. Joe Biden, interestingly enough, was the first person on the national stage to really open up about it uh, ahead of Barack Obama, uh, which is interesting. Um, but the, then the, the top of the cake to me were the court cases, because you had a series of court cases that had to frankly break your way or our way. I'm a same sex marriage proponent, so I'll say our way. Um, and I thought that was fascinating as well. And then, of course, you brought up the state legislature. I would think that's at the top of that cake. What's your reaction to my analysis of the book? Yeah, I mean, I'm not much of a baker, so my sense of, of cake architecture is, is a little wobbly. But, you know, I think one, I, I think you have the elements right. I think one thing is that the, the sort of causal chain, in a lot of cases, it was courts forcing politicians to address this issue. And so, you know, my, my book starts in Hawaii in 1990. At that point, there's, you know, not a single gay rights organization in the United States that has endorsed marriage as an objective. There's barely a politician in the United States who's been asked his or her opinion on marriage. There, you know, and there's obviously through the 80s, a lot of anti-gay activism on the religious right, but they're not trying to stop gay people from marrying because, you know, they're trying to stop sometimes gay people from working as teachers, serving in the military, having employment 
uh, non-discrimination protections. And it's a court case in Hawaii that ends up forcing in just in Hawaii, the legislature and the governor to have to stake out a position on this. Um, and we see versions of that in Vermont and Massachusetts. And eventually, you know, part of what's driving, you know, um, uh, senators who are changing their position in 2013 is it's going to the Supreme Court. And so, um, you know, I think that the, 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 the legal, um, you're right that I think politicians were sort of followers of public opinion, but the thing that was driving this to the top of the agenda was often lawsuits, um, sometimes accidental, like in Hawaii, and sometimes sort of well-plotted civil rights test cases. But, but those are the elements. Yeah, I think that there's a sort of, there's a ground level social change that, that took place. And then um, uh, I think the legal stuff was sort of the direct engine, and then the political class had to respond to, 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 to this. And for a long time, you know, what same-sex marriage activists were trying to do was keep politicians out of this because of their, their feeling was if we won in court, the only thing could be bad if a, if a state legislature or a governor decided to, to amend the constitution or try by statute or something to, to undo a court victory. When you go back in your intellectual journey on this idea of same-sex marriage, uh, let's start with Bill Clinton in 1996 in the Defense of Marriage Act. And then let's fast forward to 2012. To me, that's a pretty short period of time. If you think about the civil rights struggle from, say, 1865 to the introduction of Jackie Robinson in American baseball in 1947, uh, it seems like this moved very fast. Why? Yeah. You know, and, and suffrage would be the other thing, right? You know, I mean, we're looking suffrage, at like seven, yeah. 75 years from, from Seneca Falls to, uh, uh, to women getting the vote nationwide. I think the biggest difference uh, between uh, the marriage, you know, and I would separate here marriage as opposed to sort of the whole uh, bundle of LGBT related issues, which has been a, a longer arc and still not, not won or settled. Um, I think the big thing was that um, the, you know, whether the majority or the people in, in, in with power didn't have to give anything up. And, you know, um, I think one way we often talk about sort of civil rights or social movements as these sort of contests over public ideals, justice, freedom, liberty, equality, stuff like that. It's also a way to look at it where they're basically contests over um, scarce resources. And, you know, what, what, when women decided to seek property rights, husbands and fathers like appropriately recognized that um, they were going to lose wealth. Um, when men saw that women getting the vote would dilute their own political power, white people saw that black people getting the vote would dilute their own political power. Um, every push for, for, you know, immigrants rights, um, uh, native born populations see it as a threat to their jobs. Desegregation was a threat to, you know, landlords who didn't want somebody to tell them who they had to rent their uh, uh, buildings to. The disability rights, the ADA, you know, burden landlords with with having to spend money on on repairs and adjustments. Every time to to be more accepting or open it, open, people had to give something up, often with a real material value to them. And the thing I you know that that. The sort of counterfactuals I like to play with is like, what if there were a limited number of marriage licenses in the state? Um, you know, you know, would you would somebody like you or some of those, you know, straight hedge fund guys we mentioned, uh, uh, other sort of, you know, the 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 moderate, the moderate straights who who came around and supported this, like, 
if you knew that you or your child would have to wait six or nine months in line for a marriage license because a gay person was now getting in front of them, would, would your views have changed? It might. And, you know, the other way of asking it is sort of like, what if the defining LGBT rights issue of the last uh, generation were affirmative action for, for, for gays and lesbians in, in areas where they thought they'd been discriminated against? This didn't really create a competition. And almost every other form of increased rights for a minority group creates a, a form of competition that's a threat to people who, who have wealth and power. It doesn't create a competition. But for some reason, Sasha, and you correctly write about this in the book, there is a threat there for some reason. I, I, uh, I don't know. Is it a threat to someone's sexuality? Is it a threat to what people perceive normalcy, which I find ridiculous. That's, you know, but I'm just letting you know, that's a lot of people see it that way. Um, how did we break down those ideas? I mean, we, we went from 30% of the people supporting gay marriage, eight years later, 70% of the people. And we went from gay men and women being reluctant to admit that they're gay to an openly gay presidential candidate like Pete Buttigieg uh, in 2020. So I think on the marriage front in particular, you know, May 17, 2004 is the day that same-sex couples are able to first legally marry in the United States and Massachusetts. And the rhetoric shifts after that day in a really significant way. Before then, people who were opposed to same-sex marriage, and as you said, you know, at that point, it's probably 65% of the population um, was was opposed or... or uh, uh, such. Um, and the things you heard from people, you know, I think uh, were, this is going to be the end of the American family. This is going to be the end of Western civilization. You know, Rick Santorum said that co compared to the Massachusetts court decision to 9-11, said it's a homeland security crisis. Um, and, you know, look, I think some of that was like natural hyperbole. He's my, he's my spiritual advisor, Sasha. Yeah. I just want you to know that. Okay. Rick Santorum. No, I'm, I, I, he's not my spiritual yes. advisor. You didn't catch the sarcasm. I, I, I've seen your list of bundling. I, I, I'm pretty sure that I um, didn't see you max out to Santorum. Um, no. The, the um, you know, look, some of that's hyperbole, like conscious hyperbole. And some of that, I think people were really afraid of something that was new. And, and you know, before, before 1999, there wasn't a society on earth that had allowed gay couples to marry. And it it's, it was a radical proposal. You know, everybody has, unlike a lot of political issues, you know, I don't think there are a lot of people in the United States who are more than one or two degrees of separation from somebody who's married. This isn't abstract. It's real. And people had seen only one type of family structure that was acknowledged under the law. And I think people were really honestly afraid of what would happen. And, um, what happens after Massachusetts, you know, there are these incredible warnings of like societal decay. And what happens afterwards is nothing. And, um, you know, people are, there's obviously no outward, like schools function the same way, businesses function the same way the day afterwards. This question of, you know, that we heard, sort of have heard over the years, you know, from a gay or lesbian person, what is, what is, how would my marriage affect yours becomes like, a real challenge and there's like nothing and people are pouring over statistics. Gay couples are not getting divorced at a higher rate. Their kids are not having worse outcomes. Their communities are no weaker or less strong. And if anything, 
what you start to see is that communities around gays and lesbians who are able to build a family on the same terms as straight people are stronger and better off. And you know what? Guess what? Their employers like it because they get predictability over who's going to get what benefits and what they get from the government and what they don't. Labor unions like it because now they can negotiate for for benefits without having to come up with something crazy. You know, communities like it because they want full, stable families, you know. Um, and, and so part of what changes, I think, with time is that the it becomes the coalition of people who are opposed to this starts to shrink because nobody is actually feeling any sense of harm. I mean, one of the you know major challenges for maintaining a political coalition on any issue is getting people who are actually invested in an outcome. And the, the, the group of people who are invested in stopping this shrinks. There's still people who, who believe that biblical, you know, declarations of what's uh, uh, appropriate and godly, they haven't changed their views of this. But I think people who feared that somehow this would damage society don't have anything to lean on. And at the same time, you have the community of people um, who are invested in this spreading. And, you know, one thing that's that's different between we, we talked about the sort of efforts at rate at, at equality over race and sex. Um, uh, unlike with with race and sex, people control the the conditions under which they acknowledge and disclose and announce their sexual orientation and for that matter, gender identity. And so people can come out and, um, uh, you know, almost by definition, uh, uh, gay people are born to straight people. And that means that, you know, there are not a lot of, we know social scientists call it contact theory. We know that people's political attitudes change when they have exposure to somebody who's different than them. Oh, but they're not Senator a, Rob Portman's son came out and right. Vice President Cheney's daughter came out and all of a sudden their views started to shift. Um, and, and one thing that's important to realize there's like, you know, that's something that can happen because of how heredity and sexual orientation work. Um, that's not something, there are not a lot of Latino kids being born to Jewish parents. You know, there are not a lot of, of immigrant kids being born to native born parents. Um, it's really important just to realize that like, as best we understand the odds of a gay kid ending up in any household in the country are, are pretty evenly distributed. And, and whereas racial segregation means that you're not likely to find out that, that your next door neighbor has been, has been raising an African-American child all these years. And that just, you know, exposes far more people to gays and lesbians. And, and I think probably transgendered people as well, than then they would get exposed to people of a different race or religion, for example. This is, this is an opinion question. Um, but I'm curious because you have an informed opinion. Is there a stigma to being gay? I mean, I think it's received. I mean, there certainly was in American society. I think it is greatly receding. Um, I'm, and, you know, I think some of it's local. I, you know, if I, you know, I'm a straight guy, um, if, if you told me I was a gay man and I had to decide where to start my life, there are probably certain places in the country and certain occupations or certain types of schools where I would feel more welcome than others. And I think that's a result of stigma. I, you know, um, but, but the good news is it's receding. The good news is that we're yeah. getting past it. You know, I mean, you mentioned, because, you mentioned Buttigieg, like the fact that he was gay was not that interesting to people. Um, people talk about he was young. He was mayor of a small city. Like, you know, who did he work for at Bain? Like we didn't really, it was not a defining part of his public identity. And I think that's pretty telling a decade earlier, 
any gay man who ran for president, that would have been the um, defining aspect of their candidacy at every moment, I think. Well, well, he's obviously a, uh, you know, he's a very impressive person. And I think that that's what we have to get past, whether it's our sexual orientation, our skin color, our religious preferences, you know, uh, can you do the job or not? I think that's ultimately the, uh, the thing that we have to look to. I have, I have one last question for you before I turn it over to John yeah. Dorsey. And that's, and I'm probably not going to pronounce the name right, but Carl Nesib. John, did I pronounce that right? I know you. Nesib, yeah. Nesib. He came out and he said that he was gay. This is the Oakland and, Raiders player or LA yes, Raiders. Or yes, the LA yeah, Raiders yeah, player. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the commissioner, uh, Roger Goodell, uh, a good guy, I might add, know him reasonably well. He, he applauded it, re- released a statement from the NFL. It was very well received. Uh, a couple of years back, uh, Michael Sam came out, uh, less so received. So is this another sign of progress in the fight for equality? Uh, like how do you think race factored into the reception of these athletes? That's Again, a great these question. Are these are yeah, I, um, I mean, I do think that you look at, uh, I don't remember how long Michael Sam was five years ago. I mean, I think there's been a significant yeah. shift in in um in that time some of it is you know you mentioned the nfl as an organization and one thing we have seen you know uh pride month ended a few weeks ago is institutional america and that includes corporate america becoming so unreserved in its in its um not just acceptance of of um lgbt people but in its sort of active uh uh support and and i think you know companies falling over each other to be seen as allies or supportive in part because they recognize that their employee base and their customer base and their investor base um, are, are want to see that. And they're responding to sort of market incentives. But I do think that, that some of this might be that, that organizations like the NBA um, or the NF, uh, uh, NFL in this case are, are, you know, want to see that want to be seen as leaders on, on these type of social issues. And so you're getting it from the top down as opposed to just sort of from the community up. I mean, you know, one thing, one thing that's worth, you know, in terms of the sort of the decrease of stigma, I think is real. it's really important to realize how our understanding of the science of sexuality has changed over this time. You know, this is, I went back and consumed a lot of media coverage from the nineties while, while researching this book. And like every time you read an article from time and or Newsweek about any gay rights issue, not just marriage um, from the 1990s, there's like always a paragraph. It's like, to be sure, we don't know whether it's nature or nurture that turns people gay or lesbian. And, you know, politicians, activists, preachers, whatever would talk about lifestyle and choice. And nobody talks that way anymore. And it's because, you know, downstream from laboratory research, we now have an understanding that basically people are born with a whole lot of stuff that they don't control. And that is not just related to sexuality, but temper, addiction. We talk differently about everything. And we, you know, I think it's now widely accepted. Even the Rick Santorums of the world aren't going to pretend that, 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 you know, Michael Sam or Carl Nassib or whoever it is chooses to be gay. And so then the question is like in a decent society, if if people are being born this way, what how do you respond to that? And, you know, denying them the opportunity to have a job or play a sport um, would seem like a pretty uh, 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 harsh response to something if if 
if, if we sort of accept as a society that, that, um, that, that we, there will be gay people. So the question is what type of society do we want to be to them? John Dorsey. Yeah. And Sasha, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, fantastic book you wrote. A lot of what you wrote about too in the book were colorful characters and consequential characters when it comes to this fight um, that obviously accelerated in, in the most recent decades. Could you just talk our audience through uh, some of the, the people that you came across that you found most interesting and the role they played in this fight for marriage equality? Yeah, sure, John. Um, you know, so the, the book starts in in, in Hawaii in, in 1990, and the main character there is this guy, Bill Woods, who I never got the chance to meet. He he. He passed away a few years before I, I started working on this, but but um, I was able to sort of, you know, reconstruct his life and activities. He was like the gay activist in Hawaii in, in the 1970s and 80s. And like a lot of, I think, first generation activists in any sphere or community, he was, you know, incredibly entrepreneurial. He founded the Gay Community Center. He he uh, uh, started the gay newspaper. He was had the first gay radio show in Hawaii. Um but not particularly good at, at building alliances or coalitions or working well with others. And very good about getting attention for himself, but not terribly good about, about um, uh, uh, playing well with others. And, and, and he ends up in this petty rivalry for, uh, within a pride planning committee in, in Honolulu in 1989. And he already has a, uh, uh, kind of has it out with these two lesbian women who are running this pride planning committee because they have launched a magazine uh, island lifestyle that competes with his gay community news for what, what John, you can only imagine is the, the large pool of advertisers in, in Oahu in, in 1989 who want to be in, in, in gay publications. And he wants to have a parade as part of the pride planning uh, 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 festivities, and they just want to have a picnic and vigil. And so they give him a subcommittee to research the parade. He comes back with a report. They dismiss the report. So he decides he's going to quit their pride planning committee and start his own pride parade planning committee. And now this now Bill Woods is looking for all these ways to upstage the picnic event. Um, and so he invites the governor to be the grand marshal of his parade. He gets the Royal Hawaiian Jazz Band. He gets a... a a chef caterer friend of his to put on international food festival. And he decides he's going to have a mass wedding, like a Mooney style, few dozen couples on stage at a rally at the end of this parade. Uh, and they're going to exchange vows. And there've been couples who've been doing this at a, the metropolitan community church, which is a local gay friendly, uh, uh, sort of ambiguously Protestant denomination, these holy union ceremonies, but people knew it had no force of law. They were just exchanging vows. Um, Bill Woods was not a lawyer. It's pretty clear to me he misread the state's family law code. And he came away with the impression that if these couples actually exchange vows on stage, that, that the state might have to recognize them as married. And he went to the Hawaii ACLU to get them to back him up um, in this sort of legal theory. And they also, you know, they wanted nothing to do with him, but they also didn't want to say no to him because they they knew Woods well enough to know that if you pick a fight with him, he would... Uh, uh, you know, sort of revel in it and it wouldn't work out well. And so they spent all of 1990 just sort of like pushing him off, clearly trying to get past uh, June 1990 when Pride Month would happen, hope that Woods would lose an interest in this marriage thing, go ahead with his parade or whatever and, and move on to the next thing. And he didn't move on. The, the, the marriage ceremony didn't happen, but they um, uh, 
But now he was pissed that the ACLU had basically been stringing him along and disrespecting him. And so December 17th, 1990, Bill Woods decides he's going to launch this PR stunt basically to, in his hopes, to jam the ACLU into having to back him up. That once there's media coverage of this, there's no way that the ACLU can say no to actual gay couples who are want to, you know, uh, uh, fight for marriage rights. And so he gets like the Honolulu press corps to follow them into the, the uh, public health department. These three couples request marriage licenses. They're turned down. The attorney general says that the health director was right under state law to reject them. Woods leads them to the ACLU with all these cameras. The ACLU still says, no, we don't want to be part of this. Um, a civil rights attorney sues on these couples behalf the next spring. And so the shock of everybody involved, this long shot lawsuit wins. And the Hawaii Supreme Court becomes the first uh, court anywhere on earth to rule that the fundamental right to marriage could extend to same-sex couples in, in May of 1993. And this is what puts marriage on the map as an issue. The Defense of Marriage Act that Anthony mentioned in 1996 is Congress eventually feeling that Hawaii is very close to actually marrying same-sex couples, one trial judge away, and that um, you need to write it into federal law to basically insulate mainland governments, the other 49 states and the federal government from having to recognize these marriages. And so, you know, Woods ends up being the catalyst for the world we live in right now. Like this would not be, this would not have become the issue the way it did if, if he hadn't launched this. And um, uh, he's both like just an amazing character um, uh, whom I wish I had had the chance to, 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 to meet. Um, but also just, I think, sort of telling in our understanding of history and that, you know, when something ends at the Supreme Court and we see a landmark decision um, that, that awards a, a, you know, a new a set of rights to a new group of people, I think our natural instinct is to assume that because the outcome was was momentous and just that it had to be inevitable. And that's often the language we use around civil rights. And there's the fact is like this, nothing about this was inevitable. It wasn't inevitable it was going to end up at the Supreme Court when it did or turn out the way it did, but it also wasn't inevitable this was going to be a thing that we as a country were fighting over. And right. so um, I, I really liked him because it shows how accidental the sort of origins of this was. Uh, Anthony referenced uh, Vice President, well, then Vice President Biden, sort of taking the lead on marriage equality within the Obama administration. President Obama himself actually for a long time being opposed to uh, marriage equality, certainly the Trump administration, it was hard to discern uh, exactly what their stance was, but they also uh, enabled legislation or, or certain rulings that, that certainly um, didn't didn't enhance the rights of the L LGBTQ community, uh, if you will. But could you just compare and contrast, you know, what what took place in the Obama administration, setting aside maybe his early, um, you know, uh, he was opposed to, to marriage equality at the beginning, obviously, and change course there. But then within the Trump administration, what, what kind of setbacks did we see in terms of LGBTQ rights? Yeah. So, you know, Obama, as you say, Obama actually in 1996, when he first ran for the state Senate, said he supported same-sex marriage rights. Right. And then he later backed off and blamed a staffer for having uh, filled out a questionnaire against his will. Um, as he ran for Congress, he became basically more conservative on this issue. And, and he became where the mainstream of democratic politics were through the 2000s, where Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton were, which is saying, you know, some version of, I think marriage is between a man and a woman, but I, but I think that, that um, gay couples should have all the same rights and benefits through civil unions. And the, it became clear through 2011, in 2011, Obama sort of recognized he was out of, he was going to be out of sync with his party on this. And I tell the story of him coming to New York for some DNC fundraisers in the summer of 2011 
after Cuomo has signed the, the marriage bill into law. And um, uh, I, I think I quote one of Obama's advisors saying he felt like the, the skunk at the garden party or whatever, which is, you know, you sort of had the liberal donor class of the Democratic Party celebrating Andrew Cuomo for having sort of, you know, muscled through what they saw as courageously muscled through this bill and Obama being berated by activists for being on the wrong side of it. And so there was this process underway in the White House starting in the summer of 2011, where Obama said, basically, I want to change my position on this, but you guys, my team need to figure out how and when I do it. And, you know, I think that one of the things about being president is there's just such scrutiny of your every statement and your opinion that you can't just sort of casually change your position on something and hope no one notices the way you might be able to if you're a member of Congress or something. Um, and so there was a sort of high level effort to figure out how to do this. There's a decision that he should do it before November 2012, before the reelection, but you don't want to do it too late in the calendar because you don't want this, you know, they wanted to run against Mitt Romney on private equity and the economy. And he did not want to spend the debates or his convention having to explain why he had, had flip-flopped on marriage. They thought it would be a net plus for him running for re-election, but they still did not want this to dominate the campaign. So there were all these plans afoot in the White House. Um, and eventually they settled on the idea, you know, there's should he give a big speech like the race speech he did in Philadelphia? No, that would make it more of an event than they wanted. So he should do, he'll do an interview. They decided he should do with female questioners because there was research that suggested that um, uh, from a messaging perspective, it's better that when you talk about this family stuff. With, and so they they had plans, you know, sort of tentative plans for him. He was going to be in New York in, in June for fundraisers. He was going to go on The View. So I guess the only thing better than one female interviewer is four female interviewers. Um, and that's where Obama was going to lay out that he had evolved, as he liked to say. And Biden was aware of the general contours of this. Um, and Biden basically jumped the gun and a month early, said what he did, and it forced Obama three days later. One of the remarkable things, though, that's going on for a couple of years before that is that um, the White House Counsel's Office is, you know, there's this question of what's Barack Obama's personal position on same-sex marriage. And it's kind of irrelevant what the president's political personal position on same-sex marriage is because... There's never going to be a piece of legislation that comes before the president's desk about marriage to sign. Like, it's just not a thing that the president is going to deal with directly. But the White House and Justice Department have a lot of say in how the government, uh, especially defend, you know, handles the Defense of Marriage Act, but also gets involved in other cases as they move into federal courts. And so what you see is actually the, the White House Counsel's Office starting in 2009 getting ahead of Obama in his public position by, they eventually drop their, they say, we're going to stop defending the Defense of Marriage Act because we think it's unconstitutional, which is a really unusual position for the federal government to take, saying we're not going to defend our own laws and courts. You know, basically, our whole system of, of constitutional litigation is based on governments have to defend their own laws, otherwise there's nobody there to do it. Um, and so, you know, it's one of these things, and, you know, I don't know whether, Anthony, you spend enough days in there to get a, a good perspective on this, but there, that, that there are a few different levels at which a White House can operate. There's what the president says publicly, and then there's what his government is doing. And Obama's government was always sort of more aggressive on this marriage question in courts than he was. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the Trump years, Trump was always, he was very ambiguous about this throughout the election. He, you know, he, 
he criticized the Supreme Court decision um, uh, uh, when it happened, the Obergefell decision in 2015 that that, that made same-sex marriage a law of the land. But then he was interviewed by Leslie Stahl a couple of days after the election in 2016, and he says it's settled law. I accept it. Um, I think that there was a real disconnect between, you know, Trump's attitudes towards marriage, words and action. Well, between I think between on marriage where he did not, uh, he he. I was surprised that that this was not a bigger issue in the 2015-2016 election season among Republicans because you had the Supreme Court striking down state bans in some of the reddest states. You know, uh, Bobby Jindal briefly said we should abolish the Supreme Court because of this. There was a, a moment where Ted Cruz and and Mike Huckabee went down to Kentucky where where that um, county clerk Kim Davis was refusing to issue licenses. But for all of the ways in which Donald Trump you know, has an exceptional gift for pitting Americans against each other for his own amusement, political benefit, instinct, whatever. He did not seem interested in pitting gay couples who wanted to get married against his base. Like that just not, was not his thing. Um, That said, you know, I don't think that, you know, I think there's a real difference between how certain parts of the, uh, uh, Republican conservative world now look at gay and lesbian concerns and transgender issues. And, you know, Rick Rennell, who is probably the administration's leading voice on on sort of what gay Republicanism should be, seems pretty intent on kind of splitting the LGBT coalition between gay men and lesbians and maybe bisexuals on one side. And then, you know, people deal with gender identity issues. And so, you know, the the um, the Trump administration at a, on a rulemaking level was um, set back LGBT rights in a lot of areas, but there, you know, there wasn't a whole lot um, that it, it chose to do or, or really directly could have done on, on, on marriage. So you talked about the Supreme Court, and uh, this will be the last question before we let you go, is Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion uh, last summer uh, in a workplace discrimination lawsuit, Bostock versus Clayton County. Uh, he basically ruled that you cannot fire someone, you, you probably are more familiar with this case even than I am, on the basis of sexual orientation that falls under the, the sex category. Um, and that surprised a lot of people. You know, there's been various rulings from the Supreme Court uh, when Trump's appointees have been sitting in those chairs that have surprised people and sometimes to the consternation of certain elements of, uh, of the Republican community. How surprising was that decision? How important was that decision uh, in terms of, you know, ridding ourselves of, of certain workplace discrimination. So I think it's, it was really important um, just in the lives of people. You know, there's still uh, 13, 14 states that, that you know, permit uh, a company to fire somebody because they're gay or lesbian or not hire them or not promote them. Um, uh, and, um, you know, it's been, there's been efforts for almost 50 years, but in earnest for, for 30 years to pass a federal law that would codify making that illegal. And it hasn't, gotten through the Senate ever. So, um, so this is important and creates a conditions for, for folks in a lot of those states to bring federal actions. Um, now, um, it just dealt with employment. There's still a question about housing discrimination, lending discrimination. In a lot of those states, you could choose not to rent something to somebody because of their sexual orientation. You can deny them a mortgage. Um, you can turn them away from your diner or a hotel. Um, and so, you know, Bostock, the, the logic of Bostock could apply to those other areas, but it the actual decision did not. Um, 
Now, it's important to look at how Gorsuch wrote that, the reasoning behind that. You know, so basically he, he calls himself a textualist. That means that you look at the the text uh, 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 of, in this case, of a of a law of the Civil Rights Act of, of 1965. And um, uh, the uh, it says you cannot discriminate on the basis of race, sex, blah, blah, blah. And his interpretation was that, well, traditionally or in the past, we've understood sex to mean biological sex. Sex should be understood to mean sexual orientation. Um, and that uh, just based on that definition of the word sex, that, that employment discrimination against somebody because they're a woman is the same in legal terms as discriminating against them because they're a lesbian. Um, the it's notable that that wasn't a civil rights decision you know it was as it was narrowly it was it was a momentous decision but it was narrowly applied to to that which is you know anthony kennedy also who who was behind you know uh four major gay rights decisions also was resistant to kind of traditional civil rights thinking and that meant that that you know even when he there was a way that he could have written the marriage decision that would have affected uh, other areas of interest to LGBT folks under the law and didn't. And Gorsuch's, you know, one irony, I mean, maybe it's not an irony of, of, I don't think this is necessarily his strategic plan, but what Gorsuch did was he left it open. It wasn't a matter of constitutional interpretation. It was just a matter of interpreting the text of, of that bill. And it's possible that if you had a Republican uh, uh, House and Senate and, a, you know, President Mike Pence in, 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 in a few years, that they could amend with, you know, a majority in the House and whatever gets you through the Senate these days, the Civil Rights Act to say biological sex and overrule the Supreme Court. Um, and so by not making it a matter of constitutional guarantee and just making a matter of statutory interpretation, it, it was flimsier than it could have been. And so, um, you know, I, I think you're right to, to note that 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 was a surprise coming from a conservative justice, but it's also the getting there was, you know, notable for what it, it chose not to do. And right. it made it, it made it possible to get a majority, I think of, of, of votes on that. Right. Well, the struggle is ongoing. Again, the book is the engagement America's quarter century struggle over same sex marriage, uh, a, a fantastic topic to write about and extremely well-written Sasha. Thank you so much for joining us. Anthony, you have a final word for Sasha before we let him go. What, what what's next, Sasha? What book are we writing? I've gotten very interested in a historic election fraud scandal that took place in Indiana over 100 years ago that I I think is just a hell of a true crime yarn and also um, shed some light on on the conversations we're having now about about, uh, you know, the nature of election fraud and to what extent it, it exists or has existed in American history. So All right. it'll, well, be, we, we, it'll be shorter and I promise not to spend it won't be 900 pages. And I won't spend a decade on it. That's my guarantee <laughs> to you. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. This has been a great conversation for us. Uh, Sasha, if you don't mind, hold up the book because mine is in New York. Uh, I want to hold it up again for everybody. The engagement. What a great what a great story about America's quarter century struggle over the same sex marriage. Uh, thank God we're uh, we're through that struggle, by the way. I think it's great for our society. I appreciate you writing that book and hopefully we'll get you to one of our live events soon. I'd really like that. It's great talking to you, Anthony. Nice to meet you, John. You as Thank well. You. And just another piece of trivia before we wrap up here. 
President Joe Biden spoke at the SALT conference in 2017. He came there along with the human rights campaign. So it's, it's certainly encouraging to see somebody uh, with a very proactive view of you know, marriage equality, just general uh, equality. So we continue uh, to, to hope that arc bends towards uh, equality for everyone. But uh, thank you, Sasha. And thank you, everybody, for tuning into today's SALT Talk with Sasha Eisenberg. Just a reminder, if you miss any part of this talk or any of our previous SALT Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks if you find them interesting. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon. Thank <laughs> you.